and we are glad to have you aboard. Um, we are rapidly approaching Christmas, boys and girls. What about that? Um, oh, somebody asked if I had new glasses. Yes, this is a new pair of glasses. Um, I like silver. Margie likes gold. So we should have like a vote whether you like silver or gold. Send your email to radio at money99.com. The winning entry receives a new car. No, not really. I've just made that up. Um, so um, what do we got going today? There's a lot to cover today. And we've done all that. We need to begin by thanking our sponsors. Our quote of the week is from Thomas Jefferson, different than in previous weeks, where he says the natural progress of things is for liberty to yield and government to gain ground. And I'll leave that with you. Those of you that are concerned should be concerned. Those of you that think that's a good idea should think that's a good idea, I guess. I'm not going to tell you how to think or what to think. I'll just stimulate you to think. How about that? We're brought to you today by Home Meteorite Shield. Protect your home against deadly meteorite strikes for only $14.95 a month. Stephen Hawking considered asteroid collision to be the biggest threat to the planet. Here's Ms. Hodges, who is uh, her friend there is holding a meteorite that crashed through her ceiling. And here's an actual NASA photo of a meteorite striking near your neighborhood. So you can protect your home against these deadly meteorite strikes. Send your money, $14.95 a month to Americans for democratic action in modern society, or just make the check payable to ADAMS. Um, we're also brought to you this week by Peter Burke of Reliant Mortgage Solutions. And I would encourage you to begin the conversation. We talked about this last week, but um, I think it's important for you to understand that um, working with a real estate mortgage lender, a home lending specialist, will benefit you more if you have a relationship with someone in the business before you need it. And I try to tell people that, and people are reluctant just to pick up the phone, but Peter Burke understands that. He understands particularly the needs of those of us that invest in real estate from time to time. And he's happy to talk with you. He's happy to help you review your current portfolio, your current lending position, and help you evaluate what makes sense and maybe what doesn't and what options you have. And, you know, as an investor, and I've been doing this for a long time, the more options you have, the better off you are. Uh, Warren Buffett said that most risk comes from not knowing what you're doing. And Peter Burke already knows what you're doing. And so I just think the, even if you don't need to borrow money, I'd go ahead and call Peter and say, look, John speaks highly of you. 
there must be a reason. Let's just talk about real estate a little bit. I think you'll find Peter's happy to talk to you. And he works seven days a week, 24. Well, he doesn't work 24-7, but almost, it seems like. So uh, give Peter a call, and we thank him for sponsoring us today. A little bit of housekeeping. Please turn off your cell phone. Um, I don't want you Facebooking around. I was on Facebook the other day. I, I, the only time I get on Facebook is when I'm doing a Fox 5 Facebook live chat for the station, which I do after uh, I appear and am interviewed, which uh, is usually uh, once a week or a little less. And somebody had literally put in the Facebook chat where I was talking about closing costs or something like that. Somebody had put in there, just had breakfast. It was really good. And several people commented, oh, what did you have? And this whole sub thing uh, on my chat about what was good for breakfast. I do not understand Facebook. I want someone please to explain it to me. I don't know. Anyway, turn off your phone, enter your questions in Q&A. If you have chat available, put your cursor down at the bottom of your screen. Um, there is chat. Do not use chat. Use Q&A for your questions, please. And we'll be going about 45 minutes. We'll have time for Q&A. If you have any questions, uh, the recording will be available of this program on realestatecoffeebreak.com. And uh, please use Q&A. Do not use chat. And so here's our good friend Warren Buffett once again uh, saying, if you don't find a way to make money while you sleep, you will work until you die. Now, I titled this slide, Would You Like Fries with that? Because I don't want to, in my waning years, which I don't think I've gotten to yet, this is good coffee today. In a, a <clears throat> I consider myself a seasoned citizen, but I don't consider that I have approached my waning years yet, and I don't want to be working at McDonald's saying into the microphone when I take an order, would you like fries with that? I'm not denigrating people that work at McDonald's. I think McDonald's is a great place to work. It was my first real job. And McDonald's taught me a lot about working, about what to do. And that's why I made a dollar and 80 cents an hour or something like that, which was below minimum wage, but I didn't deserve minimum wage because I did, I'd never had a job before. I didn't, I remember the manager came, this is at McDonald's, we've all been there. Manager came to me and said, hey, if you don't have anything to do, take a towel and just shine the stainless steel counters. I said, they're clean. He said, it doesn't matter. I want people that drive by to see that everybody in here is working. I said, all the time? He said, all the time. So if I didn't have anything else to do, I was shining the stainless steel, which made the place look prosperous and busy. And then they sold more hamburgers. 
And I learned that at McDonald's. That's a valuable life lesson. So I would encourage you to find a way to make money while you sleep. And I would encourage you to consider investing in little houses. And I believe you can retire comfortably on as few as 10 little rental units. They don't have to be big two stories like this one here. Um, they don't have to be in schmancy, fancy neighborhoods. They need to be clean, decent, affordable housing. And there's a lot of advantages to doing that. We'll be talking about some of them today. Um, let's see. Margie joins us now because we are going to go right to the mailbag. And if you have a question you would like me to answer, <clears throat> please send it to radio at money99.com. That's radio at money99.com. And hopefully Margie will join us momentarily. I'm here. Are you there? I'm here. I can hardly hear you. Oh, well, I'll speak up. Well, that's better, I guess. Okay. I will ask people to put in Q&A if they can hear you. Anyway, why don't you read us our question from Heather in Douglasville today? All right. Heather says, I found a great deal on a fixer-upper in my neighborhood. My husband wants to fix it up and sell it for fast cash. I want to buy and hold as a rental. What's right? Hmm. Is that the right well, question? Since I can't hear you. <laughs> is that the right question? I, that is the right question. Um, I've just turned your volume up for me. So maybe everybody can hear you. I hope they can. In any case, uh, let's answer the question. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and go back to share screen here. There we go. Bing and bing. Um, so in essence, Heather has found a great deal on a fixer-upper in her neighborhood. And her husband wants to fix and flip, and she wants to rehab and rent. Is that the essence of the question, Margie? Yes, it is. Okay. All right. Well, I think the answer is it depends. And I, when I said that, Tito just went berserk. So Tito thinks that is the right answer. It does depend. So let's talk about what it depends on, okay? Um, first, I, we need to understand that when you do a flip, and a flip is where you buy it, fix it up for the purpose of selling it, and then you sell it. When you do a flip, it creates earned income. And that earned income is taxable. Margie, talk for just a second about if we bought a house for 50 and put 10 into it and sold it for 110, what would happen? Well, you're going to have a taxable gain of 60,000, right? 50, 50. Oh, okay. I didn't hear your numbers. Um, so you're going to have a taxable gain of 50000 and you're going to have to pay tax on that of almost half of it uh, because you've got your normal uh, marginal ta federal tax rate, which is probably 28% or something like that, uh, plus Georgia tax, which is 6%, plus its earned income, 
uh, because it doesn't qualify as a capital gain because you bought it for the purpose of reselling it. Um, so it is uh, like inventory and you pay tax on it and self-employment tax, which is social security, but it's both sides of social <coughs> security. So it's 15.3% instead of 7.65. Well, I just real quickly added that up and it came up to 49.3%. Yep. It's well, only going to go up from here. How can it be that high? You mean to tell me my tax, if I buy a house, fix it up, sell it, and that was my intention all along, and I make $50,000, I essentially have to give $24,500 to the government? Yes. Um, and, and that's the same rate you pay on all marginal income. Every, marginal income means every additional dollar that you make is taxed at your regular, whatever your marginal tax rate is, whatever you've gotten up to, plus um, state, plus social security, if it's earned income. Well, but what if rents, I move? What what if I move to Florida? Well, then you don't have the six percent state tax. Okay. <laughs> but if it's well, here, still Georgia's bad. on it. <laughs> that's forty-two point nine percent. This is crazy. Yeah. Well, they uh, the income tax system is designed to hide from us, make it less, make it more palatable. Uh, so that we don't realize how much income, how much tax we're actually paying. But we're paying a lot more than that because there's taxes on everything at every level. Like maybe gasoline? Yeah. And uh, what about sales tax? And Oh, I forgot about that. And by the way, I bought something in Fulton County the other day, and I believe it was 8%. Yep. That's pretty pricey. Okay. It's All just right. going to go up from here. The more we want government to do, the more they have to tax us. So we'll just have to depend on them to. This is give throwing us a me bit into back. broad underlying <laughs> depression. All right, move on. All right, here we go. Um, a a um, rehab and rent or repair and rent creates value. In other words, if we bought the house for 50, put 10 in it, now it's worth um, um, 110. We created value, but we can pull that cash out totally tax-free. Now, we won't, probably won't be able to get all of it out, but if we talk to Peter Burke, he has a cash-out refinance loan that after we have been in the property for six months, after we've had a tenant in there, after it is seasoned, which is a word you need to understand, um, the current seasoning requirement is six months, then you can um, base the new loan on the after repair value, not the purchase. And that's what we're going to talk about today is appraisals. So, uh, but you get cash that way, but there's no tax, at least currently there's no tax. Now, if you ever sell, you're going to have to pay that tax. But Margie, tell us the advantage of waiting more than a year to sell the property well, if we rent it. It's basically, it's based on your intent, not really how long you hold it, but 
uh, if you buy the property for the purpose of holding it long term, uh, you sell it after a year, then it's if you buy it for the purpose of holding it, then it's capital property. It's a capital asset. So it qualifies for either short-term or long-term capital gains. If you hold it for more than a year, it's a long-term capital gain. So one, you don't pay the full rate. You pay whatever the capital gains rate is on your income level. And you don't have to pay Social Security. Huh. Okay. So um, and you also, if you sell it in less than a year, it's still a, it's a short-term capital gain, which is taxed at your normal rates, uh, but you still don't pay Social Security. Oh, okay. All right. Well, we need to spend another time talking about establishing intent, but that's another story. Um, would you agree with me, Marge, that a fix and flip is a more risky venture and a more risky project overall? Well, sure it is. Um, if you buy something and you're going to hold it long term, even if you make a mistake and, and realize after you buy it that there's a lot more damage to the roof or it needs a new roof or whatever, um, time will take care of a lot of the, I mean, the property's going to go up in value. So time's going to sort of heal that error. Whereas if you make a big mistake when you buy it and try to sell it, and you might end up be actually losing money. Absolutely. And losing like money is a, is a bad, that's a no-no. That's right. So I, I would point out to everyone that the um, rehab and rent um, is easier. It's faster. It's less expensive because you don't have to rehab as much to get it ready to rent as you do to get it ready to sell. In today's market, if you want to get something ready to sell, it better be almost perfect. In fact, it better be perfect because they're going to bring an inspector in who is going to rake your property over the coals. Whereas on a rental, I've never had an inspector. People don't bring an inspector in for a rental. They figure, you know, it's just not that big a life decision. So um, you're more likely to get a tenant quickly. And in this market, a good tenant that can afford it. Um, the question to ask is, is the after repair value in the right range? In other words, we now just said the house is worth $110,000. A 1% rule, and that's my 1% rule of thumb. I'm showing everybody the rule of thumb here. Somebody take a picture. The rule of thumb. The rule of thumb is this, that whatever it's worth right now, I'd like you to multiply that by 1%. So 110,000 multiplied by 1% is $1,100. And the question is, can I rent this property for $1,100? And the answer is yes. And the reason I say that is you can rent almost anything today for $1,100. That's really pretty much the floor of a rental. I mean, like a one bedroom, one bath efficiency ought to bring you $1,000 a month. That's just what things cost now, especially in Atlanta, Georgia. So if that would meet the 1% rule. On the other hand, if this house is in a, a nice neighborhood to begin with, and you're getting a fabulous bargain on it, you still might be spending 400,000 to buy it, put 10 in it and make it worth 500,000. 
Well, that does not make sense to hold that as a rental because it fails the 1% rule. At 500,000, can you get 1%? The answer is $5,000. And the answer is no. You can't rent anything in Metro Atlanta for $5,000 a month. Why not? The reason is that if somebody has $5,000 a month in disposable income, guess what? They're going to buy a house. And I would encourage them to buy a house. So what is our realistic price range where we'd like to be? We would like to be between after repair value, maybe um, 150 to $300,000, which would mean we're looking at a rent of $1,495 to $2,995. I think $1,995 or $200,000, even $2,250 would be an ideal little rental house in today's market. So if you could find a 3-2 somewhere for less than two and a quarter that you could put some money into and make it ARV two and a quarter and then pull some cash out, you might have a good little rental house. But is it in the right range? And I think that means under $300,000 after repairs are done. Where is the neighborhood headed? Now, this is subjective. You're using your experience. And if you don't have the experience, bring in somebody that does to look at the neighborhood with you. Look at the history. Is this neighbor, is there, are they have decent schools? Is there decent transportation? Do the people there get up in the morning, strap on their tools and go to work? Uh, are these wine sippers? I don't like a neighborhood of wine sippers. Okay. So where's the neighborhood headed in five? If, if you're going to hold this longer term, um, you need to make sure the neighborhood's headed in the right direction. Has there been good appreciation in the last few years? And is it reasonable to expect that would continue? And then finally, could you hold it for a year as a rental and then use a 1031 tax deferred exchange to get out of that property into multiple smaller properties and avoid taxes altogether? Okay. So, and again, these are some complex issues I'm bringing up, but these are the considerations that you need to make, which is why you need to be investing in your education. Um, so, so much for the mailbag question. The answer, of course, is it depends. But I would like to thank, who was it? Uh, Heather in Douglasville for that good question. If you have a question for the mailbag, please send it to radio at money99, and we will try to answer it on a future program. And if you have a question for today, put it in Q&A, and we will be happy to take a look at that. And um, um, okay, that's great. That That's excellent. That's what I wanted to know. Okay, so let's now go to, let's talk about valuation. It's 26 minutes after the hour. Um, why don't we do this? Um, I hear Margie on the phone when she ought to be producing the program. Margie, are you on the phone or producing the program? Oh, okay. Well, in that case, I'm going to start valuation. 
Um, what I would like to do now is um, stop sharing. There we are. And I'm going to um, share. Watch this. Here we go. Pow. Daggone it. We're getting better and better at this. So let's talk a little about fair market value in Georgia in 2022. Um, I think this is something that we all should be thinking about because as we head into a new year, the question becomes, what is the value of my property? And you need to do this once a year. I learned this from our friend, John Mangum, CPA, realtor, and investor. That makes John a triple threat. He is sort of a walking hat trick. Does that make sense? That's a uh, reference to ice hockey, which is not my strength. But anyway, um, he said, look, once a year, sit down and look at all your properties and rank them A, B, or C. A is ones that I love. They just always do great. I don't know why they're full, no problems. C is properties that just have a problem. It seems like I'm always getting repair calls. They're hard to rent. It's too far from my house. The neighbors complain, blah, 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 blah. That's a C. And everything else is a B, which is I don't know. Go through everyone and estimate the value. And I'm going to tell you how to do that in just a minute. And um, as you're estimating value, decide if it's an A, B, or a C. And the ones that are C's, think about if they become vacant in the next 12 months, would it be a good idea, since you're probably going to be going in and painting and cleaning up anyway, would it be worthwhile to think about selling your one or more of your C properties and replacing them with one or more new A properties? How would we do that? John, wouldn't that incur a huge tax liability? No, because you're going to use what's called a 1031 tax deferred exchange. Now, we're not talking about that today, but I just want you to know, I, I think it's important for you to know how to estimate value. And we're going to be talking with Peter in just a few minutes about value. But um, here we are in the state of Georgia. By the way, that's the seal the great seal of the state of Georgia, in case you aren't familiar with it. And here's my uh, notice that I'm not an attorney or an accountant. So if you need help there, I recommend you get it. Um, you need to be aware that we have a tax system based on ad valorem tax, which means Latin is according to value, ad valorem. And it's we're, our taxes in Georgia are based on the value of the real estate. So it's real important that we know. And fair market value, it's a, and there are a variety of definitions, but in a nutshell, it's an estimate of the market value of a property based on what a knowledgeable, willing, and unpressured buyer would probably pay to a knowledgeable, willing, and unpressured seller in the current market. Okay. And the keys there are knowledgeable, willing, and unpressured. Okay. So 
um, the, it boils down to this. What's it really worth? I always love this guy because this is the way I feel sometimes when I'm trying to estimate value, but you, it's just, it's not easy. Um, and here's some ideas. Um, first, I want you to understand that value until you sell a property, value is a subjective estimate. That means somebody is guessing at it. We think, based on the information we've been able to gather, we think the property has an indicated value of such and such. This is what we think it would sh should sell for to a knowledgeable, willing, and unpressured buyer today. Okay? And because it's a subjective value, different people have different valuations. Look at this. This is how you see your house. It's a very nice brick, three-bedroom, two-bath with a, a one-car garage there on the left. And it's just a very attractive brick house with a master bedroom on the main level or upstairs or something. Now, this is how your buyer views your house. Notice the snow on the ground. Notice several windows are broken out. Notice the roof. This, this is after they get done doing an inspection, okay? This is how your lender sees the house. Peter, I'm going to ask you about non-conforming use because I think this would be a non-conforming use. Lenders would not like to make a loan on this because it's not normal. Uh, this is how your appraiser views your house. And I'm not sure why that is, but appraisers tend to be conservative when you want them to be liberal. And I want them always to be liberal and there's a toilet right there. I don't know why you'd have a toilet on the outside of your house, but to me, that's very convenient. Maybe not. And this is how the tax assessor sees your house. Obviously, this is Biltmore Estate and Gardens. Commodore Vanderbilt had this uh, made for him, it created, built for himself and his family. Spectacular property in Asheville, North Carolina. If you've never been, you should go. But what's this property worth? I don't think anybody really could estimate the value. It's a one-of-a-kind property. So we know from our own experience that Metro Atlanta's housing market uh, had, has had this year, the last 12 months, solid gains. Um, Case Schiller says 14.9%. Depending on who you believe, it could be as high as 20 um, And the shrinking supply is a problem. Lack of inventory is the problem. So um, um, let's see. So how do we determine value? We prove it through comparable sales. So here's what I want you to understand. Write these five things down. If you understand comparable sales, then you can understand what a value is for a property. And I'll tell you where to get your information in just a few minutes. But let's look at these individually. Do you see how easy this is? I think a Chinese housing complex or something like, I don't know where that is, but can you see here? You see my arrow? Yeah. This house here, this house here is going to have pretty much the same value as this house here. You see, there's just no difference. And this house here is going to be the same as over here. I mean, maybe a little bit of difference, but not much. 
Look at them. They're exactly the same. And these are what I call cookie cutter houses, where you just stamp them all out. The lots, theoretically, the lot underneath the property is different on each property, but they look pretty much the same to me. I don't see that anybody has a swimming pool or uh, the houses look identical. And I think they probably are, which means it would be relatively easy to estimate value in a neighborhood like this. So let's define what each of these components are for a comparable sale. And for the most part, an appraisal is research into what has sold nearby recently that is about the same size and age and style and the same square footage in the same bedroom and bath count or pretty close. That's what appraisers really do. Uh, and so let's start with proximity. How close is it to the subject property? The subject property is the one that we're trying to estimate the value of, okay? So how close is it? We'd like it to be within a mile. We'd like it to be next door. But what's the likelihood that the house next door sold in the last 12 months? Probably pretty slim. And if the house next door is not anything like yours or the subject property, it really doesn't do you much good. So how close is it? Same block would be the best. Same neighborhood is okay. And nearby neighborhoods are acceptable. Um, a one mile radius from the subject property is sort of a benchmark. Now, depending on the type of house, that may not be possible. Uh, think about uh, Biltmore House in Asheville. Are there any similar homes within a mile? Are you kidding? <laughs> of course not. Biltmore House, the, the Vanderbilt family owns like 40 miles in all directions. So the answer is it's impossible. Um, but in a cookie-cutter neighborhood, can you get something in a nearby neighborhood? The answer is yes. And uh, we'll talk about what that means the farther you are away. Um, in Georgia, generally, your uh, tax assessors use what are called tax neighborhoods, which I don't like. Uh, they've decided, or their computer has decided, that these particular homes are all similar when in fact, if you drive around, there may be no similarity at all, but that's what you'll hear tax assessors talking about. And I think anything greater than two miles away is questionable. That doesn't mean it's not acceptable. It just means it bears further scrutiny and an appraiser would lack confidence using it as a benchmark for value, okay? Age and style is our next factor. And what are we talking about? Well, to give you an idea, I live in a house built in 1938, and it is a Tudor revival, a brick Tudor revival, meaning it has high peaks, uh, it has um, architectural elements, it has... Um, curved entrances, and it is reminiscent of an English Tudor-style home. 
Okay, that is the style. The age is it was built in 1938. So it's just about 80 years old right now. And so do you see how if we somebody built a new house two blocks away, that would not be a good comparable for my house, except for the fact that my house has very little obsolescence in it, which means uh, deferred maintenance or things that are not up to date. We call that obsolescence. So for example, if a, a house only has one bathroom today, that is considered functionally obsolescent because everybody wants two baths. But I grew up in a house with one bath. Didn't bother us. We just didn't know any better. Okay. So just, just some ideas there. Uh, so let's forge ahead. There should be preferably your comparables are in a similar age range. The good news is most of the homes in this neighborhood were built about 80 years ago. And even in surrounding neighborhoods, most of the homes were built uh, just before World War II. And that means they're all comparable in terms of age. Um, age is, becomes less important when the homes have been updated. So what does that mean? Well, my house has been rewired. It's been replumbed. It has new central heat and air that's zoned. It has a new kitchen. It has all new appliances. And it has, uh, the, you know, everything that needs to have been done has been done with the exception of replacing the windows, which I am loath to do because um, uh, for a variety of reasons, I hate the way they look. But anyway, the, I should replace the windows. Uh, I think somebody would say my windows, which are the original 1938 windows, but they're not thermopane and they're not insulated. And so as a result, the windows are an obsolescent feature on this particular house. Um, all new systems, kitchen, bath, <coughs> all of that. and more is part of being updated. It needs to be a similar style of construction. So mine is a two-story brick Tudor revival. And if somebody else has a ranch style rambling house all on one level, that's not the same style. Now, you, it's not that you can't use that as a comparable. It's just that you have to recognize that those are different types of construction. Like a ranch is not the same as a two-story house. A split level is not the same as a split foyer. And so agents, you need to know about these different styles of housing investors, you too. And you can learn these things at an appraisal class. Then the question comes up, does it have a basement? Because it's very important. Basements are a desirable feature. Um, the question is, how much value does it add? Uh, I personally think we, you know, if it's an unfinished basement, we're probably looking at 15, maybe $20,000. But what is the degree of finish? Well, we'll see. All right, let's forge ahead. Uh, so what is your bedroom bath count? Well, it needs to be similar to that of the subject. Mine is four, three. 
Okay. So if there was a two one that sold next door, that would not be a similar bedroom and bath count. Uh, as I say, a one bath house is considered functional obs obsolete. A house without air conditioning today is considered functionally obsolete. Um, and the interesting thing of your bedroom and bath count is in order for them to count, they all have to be completely above grade. What does that mean? If any portion of a level where a bedroom or a bath is, let's say downstairs, is below grade, that doesn't count. Why, you say? Because one of the standards of the appraisal industry is that there's a different difference between basement square footage and above grade square footage. See what I'm saying? And that doesn't mean it doesn't have value. It means it just doesn't have the same value as if it was above grade. Okay. The house needs to be typical of market area. And a bedroom is defined as minimum 10 by 10 with a closet or a clothes hanging area or piece of furniture and a window. If it doesn't have a window, if it doesn't have any place to hang your clothes and it's not 10 by 10, it's not a bedroom. Now I have actually called FHA and talked with their chief appraisers about the definition of a bedroom. And they told me point blank, they do not have a specific definition of a bedroom, but these items are considered critical. Not, doesn't have to be there, but if it's not, there better be something really compensatory involved, okay? And a bedroom, in order to be a bedroom, must have direct access to bath facilities. So what about this? Where someone has three bedrooms and, and two baths at one end of the house, and then at the far end over here, they take a garage, a one-car garage, finish it off as a bedroom. But you have to walk from that bedroom through the kitchen and through down the hall to get to a bathroom. This is not considered a bedroom now. It is a finished room. It may be finished to the same standard, but it is not. And it may be heated and cool, but it is not a bedroom because it does not have direct access to bath facilities. Okay. Now, this is the Holy Grail. And when we come back, we're going to be talking with Peter Burke about how appraisals are so important in the home mortgage industry. But if you haven't paid attention to anything else we talked about, I'd love for you now to write this down. Square footage is the holy grail. Appraisers will deny this. But I want you to understand square footage is the holy grail. What are the average dollars per square foot of your comparables? And what does that indicate your house is worth? And they have what they call gross living area. 
So let's define what that means. What is GLA? Well, it has to be heated, it has to be cooled, and it has to be above grade. What is grade? It's where the dirt on the outside of the house touches the exterior wall of the dwelling. Any level of the house where if you go to a corner of that level and put your foot on it and outside the wall, it would be below grade or underground, even if it's just a few inches, no portion of that level counts as gross living area. That's very important. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't have value. That doesn't mean that you're not going to get uh, close to the same dollars per square foot, but it won't be as high. And so that should give you some guidance and direction as you go looking at houses to invest in. If any part of a floor or a level is below grade, that entire floor is below grade. Even if on the back of the house, it's you know a 20-foot drop to the ground, it doesn't matter. If on the front of the house, that level, even a portion of it is below grade, you have lost that entire level, okay? The first question they ask is when you have basement space like that is, is it finished to the same grade. It's not at all unusual for a builder to build a beautiful home and leave an unfinished basement. And then somebody goes in and finishes it out, but they never do as nice a job downstairs as they did upstairs. They may put in paneling as opposed to really nice sheetrock. They may choose to not put in crown molding or, or make it an eight foot ceiling or something, you know, that type of thing. Um, is it finished to the same grade? If not, that's going to hurt significantly. And what is the functionality of that level? Is it something somebody threw together? Or is it going to be a bedroom or a playroom? Is there adequate, um, is there a powder room? Is there a bathroom nearby? What's, what is the functionality here? And uh, you, they don't ever count attic or basement or garage space as part of the gross living area. Never. It has to be heated, cooled, above grade, and finished. Not necessarily to the same grade, but if it's not the same grade, they're going to make an adjustment, which is going to hurt your valuation. And, um, and then date of sale is critically important. Generally speaking, an appraiser only wants to look at sales that have occurred in the previous 12 months to the day of appraisal. Now, I've had people say, this is the law, 12 months, that's as far as I can go. That's not true. That is common practice, but it is not statutory. It's not part of USPAP which we're going to be talking with Peter about in just a minute. Um, 12 months is not one of the uniform standards. However, it is in common practice. And an appraiser is going to give more weight to a sale that occurred in the last 12 months than farther out. And the farther back 
the sales date is, the less influence that sale will have toward current value. Okay, that makes sense, I think. Uh, more recent is better. If it's next door, it's identical, and it sold yesterday, that's the best. But when does that happen? Rarely, rarely, okay? Um, the principle of progression uh, is that over a period of time, um, more expensive homes tend to drag along less expensive homes at a higher rate of appreciation. So the progression in a neighborhood can show a trend, even though those aren't really comparable sales. But that's getting into more detail than we really should. And under contract, a house that's under contract is not a comparable sale. Anybody can put a house under contract for any amount of money, but that doesn't mean it's a sale. And unless it is what we call an arm's length transaction, meaning um, I'm not doing you a favor by buying it and you're not doing me a favor by selling it to me. We are independent. Each of us is working toward our own goals here, okay? And um, uh, as a result, under contract does not count, but it can be presented as evidence in an appraisal. But it really is probably only considered seriously when there's hardly any sales activity. And there are neighborhoods where there's just very little sales activity. And that puts the appraiser in a tight spot. And the same thing for listings. In fact, listings, it just, the fact that something is listed for a million six doesn't make it worth a million six. The fact that it's under contract for a million six doesn't make it worth that. When it's sold for that and it's been appraised for that, then it's worth that. Okay. Um, but what about condition? And you can see here, this is an actual picture of the house that Margie and I live in. No, it's not. Well, anyway, that is the roughest house I could find that looked like it might actually be occupied. <laughs> if you find a worse one, look at it. This one over here has a greenhouse in the back. Look at that. Is that a greenhouse or another shed? I don't know. In any case, <laughs> I also like up here the, look at this, Marge. The chimney's coming right down. <laughs> so like our house, this one has original windows. <laughs> okay. Good condition is presumed on an appraisal. And what that means is they have a definition of good condition. And if it's not in good condition, they are going to deduct for less than good condition. And so let's look at the USPAP definition. I don't want to get too detailed here, but this is the official definition of good condition. Homes that may be mass produced. And by the way, mass produced means not uh, trailers but or mobile homes it means in a neighborhood where a builder came through and built stick built houses bing 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 
And I would say 90% of the homes in America were mass produced. They may have been stick built, meaning one stick at a time, one brick at a time. But um, um, nonetheless, um, they're in above average residential developments or built for an individual owner. Good quality standard materials are used throughout. These houses generally exceed minimum construction requirements of building codes. What we're talking about here is builder standard grade plus, not builder standard grade minus. So if you go into a Pulte home, which is a lot of them are starter homes, there's nothing wrong with that. I've sold plenty of Pulte homes and people have loved them. But those are builder grade homes plus maybe just a little bit. Okay. They do have some extras, but not a lot. And a relatively new Pulte home would be considered good condition because they're mass produced. They're in above average developments and they may be built for an individual owner. Uh, they use good quality materials and they exceed minimum building codes. Some attention is given to architectural design in both refinements and detail. That's iffy on a Pulte home. Um, interiors are well-finished. They're higher-end stuff would qualify as well-finished, usually having some good quality wallpaper or wood paneling. And exteriors, exteriors have good fenestration. I'm, I'm going to have to look up what fenestration means. I think it's detail. With ornamental materials or other refinements. Maybe Peter knows what fenestration is. We'll find out. So in a nutshell, this is what we're talking about when we talk about comparable property. It's nearby. The proximity is close. The age and style of comparable homes are similar. The bedroom and bath account, bedroom and bath count of the recent sale is similar if not identical to the subject property. The square footage is relatively close, certainly within 20%, preferably within 10%, because you get more than 20% away, you're not even talking about the same kind of house. Either. And the date of sale is probably within one year. Those are more or less, um, and I'd like to go to Peter now, Margie, if you can find him. Um, those are more or less the keys to value um, in the real estate market today. Um, we're not going to talk about the approaches to value. I'm going to save that for another time. But suffice it to say that there are three methods that are used in appraisal, and the comparable sale method is the one that is most used. And I'm hoping our friend, Dr. Peter Burke, is going to join us here momentarily. And when that happens, I'm going to, let's see here. Huh, look what I've done. Well, there's Peter. Hello, Peter. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, John and Margie. It certainly is a joy to see you. I'm going to see if we can um, go to some slides. Um, 
And after spending 30 minutes on, um, let's see, 28 is where I want to be. 28. There we go. Fenestration is the arrangement of windows and doors in a building. Well, it's interesting you say that because I was thinking when I asked the question, I was thrown back to Decatur High School. I was in Mr. Green's French class, and the French word for window is fenetra. Ouvre la fenetra. Open the window. Yes. And so fenetra, coming from the Latin, I'm sure something like fenetra, and fenestration, that makes perfect sense. Peter, you are a genius. It's an architectural term. So uh, are you putting a triangular window in a, in a uh, square plane and, you know, it's, uh, does it look right? I, I guess. I don't know. Okay. Well, I like the word and it's something we need to learn more about. Somebody listening right now or watching is a fenestration consultant and they will call and we'll do a seminar on fenestration. Peter, you can be reached at 678-557-9759. Is that correct? That is correct. Well, I have here um, a slide of things that you and I need to talk about because the appraisal is a very, very important part of the loan approval process. And I'd like you to speak to that if you would. Well, uh, it's, uh, it's required under almost uh, most transactions when you're buying or selling a property. There are, uh, in some instances, you can get an appraisal waiver uh, on a purchase or a refinance if Fannie Mae uh, accepts the value that we input and the loan to value is low enough and um, it just provides a waiver and says none is needed. It's always a nice little gift because it saves the uh, borrower you know, $600. And it's common on a purchase if you're putting down a lot of money, where Fannie just says, we'll take it, don't don't bother with an appraisal. And it's optional to the borrower at that point, if they want one. In that situation, that would probably be a fairly low loan to value ratio, typically. Uh, Yes. Um, And, uh, you know, 80% clearly is required uh, because the mortgage insurance folks always want an appraisal if you're putting down less than 20%. Sure. Um, And it's based upon Fannie Mae's database. So, um, you know, if you're in a neighborhood of similar homes, I'll use for an example, a John Whelan neighborhood in uh, West Cobb, where um, the houses are are fairly- uh, uh, Uniform, yeah. Yeah, uniform. and you're putting down 20% or, or more, I wouldn't be surprised if you see an appraisal waiver. If and you're that, buying in town, such as where you are, uh, not so much. And, and I think, isn't that a recognition 
of the fact that a neighborhood like John Wheeland, one, he's got a great reputation um, for building quality homes in uniformly developed areas that tend to do quite well. And that's reflected, I'm guessing, in the Fannie Mae database. Um, and they can look at that and say, you know what? This person's putting down enough money. We just don't need an appraisal. Correct. Correct. All right. What is USPAP and why is every other word out of appraisers' mouths uh, us PAP these days? You just said it. It's their uh, Bible that they use to um, uh, uh, construct an appraisal and how they how how they must reference back to decisions they make in determining the value. And uh, you'll often see if you dispute an appraisal, they'll come back and say per USPAP, and then you just say, forget it. Right, because th these things, it's very interesting. I believe this was passed in 1999 by Congress and adopted then by the Appraisal Institute, which is an industry organization. And so you've got both government, uh, which is sort of guaranteeing the mortgages, and the industry buying into this sort of definition, what are we doing here? And there's tremendous pressure on these appraisers to, to conform to these particular standards. Want so, everyone to use the same rules. Exactly. Now, tell us about appraisal management companies, because um, 20 years or so ago, we didn't have appraisal management companies. What are they? And how do, for example, Reliant Mortgage, how do you guys interact with these appraisal management companies? Let's use the example of an Uber. When you uh, call an Uber, you don't call the driver you send a note to Uber, who then puts your request out to who's ever available in that part of town. And the first person, I'm guessing, to push accept gets the opportunity to pick you up and uh, drive you over to the grocery store. And appraisal management companies, maybe I'm the only one who thinks this is they're very similar. They came about towards the tail end of the Obama administration. I always have to say, thanks, Obama. Um, <laughs> but they came about during his administration and they essentially, pardon the phrase, put up a Chinese wall between the lender and the appraiser um, where there's no communication between the lender and the appraiser. In the olden days, You'd call up Scott Murphy and say, I'm faxing over a request. Can you get it to me next week? And uh, he would call, say, yeah, sure. Well, now you send this request to an AMC who then goes back to Scott Murphy and other firms and says, we have this appraisal request. Um, here's the information. Here's the contract. Here's the here's who to contact to gain access, who wants this assignment? And I'm guessing an appraiser logs onto their iPhone and says, I'll accept it. I will say that those appraisal management companies will send that an assignment 
only to those appraisers who are qualified in that market area. Maybe they filled out a form and says, I'm experienced in Gwinnett County. I'm experienced in DeKalb. I'm not experienced in um, Douglas County. So that appraiser, um, if the assignments for Douglas County wouldn't get it. You know, it's um, interesting you say that because this was a um, unfortunate circumstance that occurred to me when I was working with a seller here in the Decatur area, particularly the South Decatur area. Somebody sent an appraiser from way out in the country. And I, I will only say that, in my opinion, this appraiser, um, well, how can I say this? There was uh, soft bigotry of low expectations. Yeah. And I just feel like this person who was not at all familiar with Decatur, I think they let race come into the issue. I think they were troubled by the fact that there were African-Americans in the community and um, they appraised the property very low. I brought this to the attention of the lender who was furious and they got at no additional expense to the purchaser, they got a new appraisal done. Yeah, when there are conflicts that can be documented, we've seen reassignments of appraisals. Um, it's rare, but it can happen. And, um, but reassignments are possible. But, you know, without belaboring the point on the, we call them AMCs, appraisal management companies, and um, um, they, they were created in the last 10 years. And a lot of them were created by appraisal companies who decided, I want to get into that business and um, um, become an AMC. Um, appraisal management companies also do another step because they take a portion of the fee that the borrower pays. If the appraisal's 595, they take 125, remit the remainder to the appraiser, but for the compensation they receive, they're also staffed with um, um, a, a type of an appraiser that's known as a review appraiser. I don't remember the exact designation, but a highly skilled appraiser who does what we simply call a QC quality control on that appraisal report before it's released back to the lender. I um, did just, not know that. So that adds a, a level of some service other than just an Uber matching up. Um, you're getting something. Yes. And um, they're also the go-between. If you've got a dispute um, which happens with an appraiser's report. You don't go to the appraiser, even though on the report you see his phone number, email address, home address. Um, you, that's a no-no. You go back to the appraisal management company and um, provide Talk a rebuttal. Them. And um, the lender does that. And the rebuttal has to be something more than the value's too low. We think it should be you know, X, not Y, 
you have to, the lender has to do their work and say, here are comparables that we've identified. Um, why didn't the appraiser consider them? And um, in most instances, you'll say, per use path, those comparables were not comparable. So it's, right. it's almost an exercise in futility. Although it, there are times when um, you can finagle it. But um, generally, we think appraisers cover enough bases that um, it's hard to rebut an appraisal. It, 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 it's a challenge. But it, it is. Be I'll, be, I'll be interested in your response to the suggestion I'm about to make, because I have found over the years that while the lender cannot talk with the appraiser, the buyer or the seller can, because that appraiser is going to have to get into that property somehow. Yes. And if you immediately on the day of sale, remove the lockbox, it'll be physically impossible for them to get in, although they'll try to lift the windows. They don't want to talk to you. Well, I, I want to kind of drill down on this topic for a moment, and it has to do with um, investors and refinancing, um, where an appraiser has to go in. Um, we give um, the AMC, which then gives to the appraiser assigned, the contact info for the owner. And... Um, that appraiser contacts the owner to say, I need to get access and it's and they know it's an investment property. So potentially there's a tenant in there. So there's a little bit of conversation back and forth between the um, uh, owner, borrower and his tenant and the appraiser. I don't think it's a good idea to say to the appraiser, okay, I gave your name and number, or I'll give you the name of my tenant. You just deal with them. I don't think that that's a great idea. I think you as the owner should say, let me get a time. I'll meet you. You have a master key, presumably to the rental house that you've got, or your tenant is there. And you should escort and uh, that appraiser through the property um, after, I, I should have said this, after you've told the tenant, clean the place up for me, please. If the lawn needs cutting, could you cut the lawn by Sunday? They're coming out the following week. Yep. Um, you know, uh, set expectations all the way around, but meet the appraiser. And if you've got a unique property or you're particular about a value, that's your opportunity to have a, a driveway conversation with that appraiser establishing what you know your expectations and maybe that appraiser has already done their homework um, before they've gone out but you know if you believe that you know you're needing 285,000 but the house next door only sold for 250 and it looks just like yours from the outside have some evidence other than but I did, you know, you know I, I, I put in new vinyl flooring in the kitchen. Have some, some reasons why you believe your house should appraise for that. I don't believe there's anything wrong with having that conversation. I, yeah, I, I agree 100%. And what I have found is that 
at least in my personal experience, appraisers are open to suggestion of information that they might not have before they make a final decision, much more so than after they've made a final decision. It's almost as if they've dug their heels in, I've put it in writing, that's the end. And so what I like to do is I say to the appraiser, um, wow, we are real excited to get your opinion of value here because we didn't know how much it was worth. By the way, here's the information we used to estimate this value. And of course, the contract came in at full price in three days. To me, a full price contract that came in quickly, while not definitive, is certainly an indication of value to some extent. So yes. if, if I can back that up a little bit for the appraiser and set an expectation in their mind, I think influence is not a good word for this slide. I shouldn't use, I don't want to influence it. I want to, as you suggested, provide to the appraiser all the information that he or she may need to justify a number that I would like to see. And John, let's back up on this because this is a purchase. So the person talking to that appraiser is either the selling agent or the listing agent, depending upon who wants to, if, 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 the, if both agents agree to pull the lockbox, one of the two has to meet that person out there. Let's presume it's the selling agent, the borrower's agent, and, um, or it could be one or the other, I guess. But, right. You know, have facts and data. Facts and data are what an appraiser knows. Appraiser doesn't, I'm not trying to be sarcastic, doesn't care that the buyer is a lovely couple relocating from Chicago and the seller is an elderly gentleman moving into a nursing home. That doesn't get us any, get, get you anywhere. The fact that this kitchen was a $35,000 redo 18 months ago and Here's um, the, the invoices that showed that it was, you know, brought down to, to, to studs and the master bath, you know, was um, updated with this, this, and this. Facts and data, you know, third-party verification, you know, there's um, radiant heat on the sun porch. Right. That's facts and data. You can't see it from uh, the naked eye. But when you see it, that's something that eludes the, you know, tips off the appraiser. Okay, I'll be on the lookout for, you know, you mentioned windows, you know, uh, uh, Anderson windows, you know, what are they, the Cadillac or Lexus? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, or Pella windows, you know, if, if that's what's in there, you can't tell by looking at them, but why not bring it up? Here's the invoice from Anderson for 38,000. Here's the quote from Home Depot for 22,000, this seller went with this window. You know, that's facts and data. Sure. And, um, I think it's critical. Again, you're the listing agent or the selling agent in there. That's what's really important. If you've got a situation where there's some nervousness or concern of value, substantiate why it went for this price. 
Well, and what I love so much about this, this um, strategy, if you will, is that it is not confrontational. It is not trying to change someone's mind. Even if the appraiser has already formed a valuation in their mind, they haven't put it on paper yet, or at least they shouldn't have. Correct. And at this point, you they are still typically open to additional information that they may not have uncovered. And it is not a direct um, attack on them or their judgment, because I think appraisers like any human being are a little defensive when somebody says you did your job and you didn't do it right. Right. And, and so if we can get that information and we talked earlier about comparable sales, I can't think of anything that is more important to give an appraiser than the most recent comparable sales of which they may not be aware. Yeah. And if those work to your benefit, um, uh, then, you know, that's dynamite. That's dynamite. So anyway, I think this is very valuable. May I make it, may I make another point? Before please, we, uh, please, and, please. Actually, I want to talk two points. Um, uh, be friends with an appraiser. An appraiser will be friends with you. And in the hierarchy of a loan transaction, the appraisers are towards the bottom of compensation and their work product is what everyone is looking for. They don't make a lot of money. And they're the ones that have to get out in the field and drive around and, and coordinate and get access and wait 20 minutes in the driveway. Um, so they kind of have a hard job um, and they're, they're not well paid. So they have to do a lot of appraisals every day in order to uh, justify what they're doing. So be friends with them and they'll be friends with you. Last part, and I wish we had Scott Murphy on this, but um, I often, it's on refinances where, a, especially on investment properties in a neighborhood where all the houses are reasonably the same, but an appraiser who identifies a higher end, a high price property, but elects not to use it because it's been more improved than your rental property, you have to realistically look at it. You can go into Zillow and say, how come he didn't use this house that sold down the street? And you look at the two pictures, the one in Realtor or Zillow.com versus the one in your appraisal and say, well, that kitchen is a $30,000 redo. You, you know, painted the cabinets and left the Formica countertops and the vinyl flooring. It's not a similar property. Or look at the master bath. It's got nice ceramic tile. You still have the original builder grade fiberglass surround. It's functional, it works, but those are the reasons that you're gonna get reduced 5,000, 6,000, 10,000, that you can't use that highly improved property that you say, oh my God, this market has jumped up. But look at the details that go into it. You know, I, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I think of all the skills that an investor can gather 
over a period of years in their experience, understanding property valuation is probably, if not the most important, certainly toward the top of skills that an investor must have in order to safely invest. Would you agree, sir? Absolutely. You know, the, the value is what drives the entire uh, life of that transaction. The purchase price that you can pay for it up front dictates a lot over the time of the life of ownership. Inherently, what I'm saying is if you get it at a good value, you know, you should have good success with it. If you, oh, you know, if it, you're not getting it for a good value, that's going to dictate your success over the continuation of that property. But yes, and it's an art and a science to interpreting an appraisal. Scott Murphy told me 30 years ago that one of the important pieces of equipment that appraisers use is their appraiser's wand, which they wave over the, the paperwork during final reconciliation to come up with a number. And that's why you and I can't be appraisers because we don't have a wand. Yeah. It, it, it's like playing 3D chess, looking at what's valuing it this way, this way, you know, how, and you're, you really got to sit and read it and say, okay, I understand that it does make sense what this appraiser is saying. And it's hard to convey that to a borrower who's bothered with the value thinking, but this is what I believe. And you kind of have to have a neutral thought on it. And it's a challenge. You know? yeah, well, it is, it is a challenge. And, but uh, we can't stress the importance of the appraisal in the lending process. It, it's just, you're right. It's what everybody's looking for. And uh, I'll tell you what some of the best success I've ever had is. And of course, this was pre-US PAP. But if you had a full-blown Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac appraisal performed after the property was repaired and before it went on the market, and then you sold it for that amount, and of course, the lender can't use that appraisal. So the lender's going to get their own appraisal and you meet the appraiser there and say, by the way, I just thought you might want to get, uh, see a copy of this. It was done two weeks ago by Scott Murphy. Yeah, no harm in doing that. I can't do it, but you want to give it to an appraiser by all means. <laughs> Peter, I have actually seen, and this is before computers, where they snipped the pictures out of the appraisal I gave them and pasted them in their own appraisals. That was in the days when they had real images glued onto the race of God that goes back forever. That was in the 1860s. Yeah. Before yeah. lithographs. Yeah. <laughs> Peter Burke, thank you, as always, for a very interesting um, look at really one of the key parts of the lending process. And, uh, I'm going to put on the screen, uh, once again, contact information for you. But Peter, we talked um, last week about starting the conversation. If somebody has questions about their 
current portfolio or their current lending position overall, or maybe even property valuation. I think one of the benefits of talking with you is um, you bring with you not just the lending experience, but an, an in-the-trenches experience uh, for investors. Um, can they call you this week? Uh, absolutely. 678-557-9759. Peter Burke, as always, we appreciate your support and the, the um, insight that you bring to this program is tremendously valuable, and we will be talking with you. Oh, by the way, Margie, what is on the, uh, what did you say was on the website? Ah, Peter, we have a surprise for you. I'm going to stop sharing for just a second. You have a surprise. I want everyone to see the look on Peter's face. Peter, if you will go to your new website at peterburke.net. Let me see if I can do it. Peter Burke, P-E-T-E-R, spell your name, B-E-R-K dot net. You will find under a resource library. Oh, we've got to have a discussion about this. I've been... Uh... Oh, learning, learning center. You have oh, a wow. new learning center. And in the learning center, Peter, you have placed an appraisal guide. Yeah. Um, tell my webmaster you're still missing my other license that's required on that. 35090. Thank you. I have a feeling that will be corrected in the next five minutes. <laughs> Before the Georgia Department of Banking and Finance. We, the last thing we want to do is make anybody unhappy on a regulatory level. And uh, folks, I promise if you give Peter a call, he'll make you happy as well. Peter, thank you very much. Thank you. Talk to you. Bye-bye. Fantastic. We are going to uh, take a short break, if that's okay with everybody. And I'm going to uh, share, let's see, I've got this up. And that's why I said start the conversation, folks. It sets realistic expectations. Even if you've called and talked to Peter, you can still shop around. It helps catch seller's attention when you can say I'm pre-qualified. You'll finish the paperwork earlier, and it helps you know what you're going to pay at closing. We're going to take a very short intermission when we come back. We'll be talking with my evil twin, Ian Robbins. So much to talk about, so little time. Don't touch that dial. Wow. What a great motion picture. If you have not seen South Pacific, you need to find a way to see South Pacific. Rogers and Hammerstein, Mitzi Gaynor, um, and some other great actors and singers. And just a real, it's a fun movie, but it also has um, some important themes that are um, relevant today 
And I'm going to leave it at that, except to say that I think you would enjoy it. And it's appropriate for all ages. That's the basic thing. It's just like the last movie in the history of the world that is appropriate for everybody and is still entertaining. And it's not a cartoon. So um, um, based, of course, on um, James Mishner's novel, uh, Tales of the South Pacific, um, just a, a great great Broadway play and a great motion picture. Back to real estate. And I've got to figure out where we're going here. I need Ian Robbins to join me. Uh, as many of you know, Ian is my evil twin. I say that because he and I both went to Emory Business School. We both had, um, Ian was behind me like 60 years. Um, but we both had Dr. Jack Andrews teach us real estate. And I thought he was a particularly likable professor. I enjoyed him. He was my favorite professor in four years. Although I have to admit, I took lots of survey classes. Uh, you know how most people like pick a, um, a major and just go really, not me, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted intro classes for four straight years. Ian, did you know that I failed a class, a course of study at Emory University? I did not know that, John. I did. What happened? Well, it was um, basketball. Okay, that's it. And the, the only requirement in basketball was that you show up and not miss more than five times in the, in the quarter. And this was back in the old quarter system. And um, I had stupidly my freshman year scheduled basketball for 9 a.m. And of course, we all know that 9 a.m. is an unattainable goal for a college student to be anywhere ready to do anything. I agree. And, and, and consequently, <laughs> I just slept in multiple times and didn't make it. And um, um, the coach, and I can't remember his name. Uh, he was a heck of a nice guy. And he took me aside after the second absence, which was like the third class. <laughs> and, and he said, John, I know we're buddies and everything. And I know you're a good basketball player. And, and believe it or not, Ian, I was much lighter in those days. <laughs> and I enjoyed playing basketball. I mean, it's not like I dreaded it or anything. But um, he said, if you miss five, I'm going to have to flunk you. And I said, okay, I'll do the best I can. Well, it wasn't good enough. <laughs> well, you know what? You, you did what you could, and but the timing of your class wasn't there. John, I will just reminisce with you for just a moment. Uh, I think a few years later, I came up, and the gym at the time was an old aircraft hangar. That's right. That's where they manufactured Bell Bombers. That's what that was. 
And then when I was there, they right after I was there, they actually uh, knocked it all down, built an amazing physical education system. Uh, you know, whole complex right there. It was incredible. It is. I have been in there. It is spectacular. But I was there. Do you remember swimming and drown proofing with Coach Smike? I do. I remember that. And I remember my advisor was the soccer coach, and um, he did his best, but he just really had no interest in really helping me. And we, well, we were... it, interestingly, Coach Smike was the father of a friend of mine from Decatur High School named Tricia Smike, who has gotten married to someone named Millions. And her name is now Tricia Smike Millions, which I think is interesting. Anyway, um, Coach Smike was from a different era, and he lacked what you and I today would consider the appropriate sensitivity to persons who are disabled. And if you didn't do what Coach Smike thought you should do, he would say, what are you, a spastic? And he would put you over in the corner with the other spastics. (laughs) And he referred to people, if, if you were not of physical skill that he thought appropriate, he would label you a spastic, which I think is not a word we would normally use in today's society. No, I don't think he would do very well now. And but, but John, I want to change gears on one thing too. I so much enjoyed your first hour, especially your graphics. I just thought they were wonderful when you were introducing value. I mean, I was just laughing out loud, as they say in today's world, with your pictures of the shoe and the how the appraisal right. looked at it. And That's then right. Peter made such a good point of facts and data and yeah. so much about instead of the nice people living in the house and how well they took care of it, here's some paperwork to see. Here's what you, we've done to improve the property to the studs. Here's a couple of pictures of 18 months ago. I mean, he just nailed it. Thank you, Peter. Absolutely. And I, I, I would stress again, and um, a knowledge, a working knowledge of the, of what's going on in the appraiser's mind is you don't have to have that going on in your mind, but you need to know about it, which is why I recommend to all investors take a continuing ed course in appraising. And appraiser, huh? Thank you. No, you gave us a course today. I'm sitting there like, this is major value. And then Peter hit it again when he was talking about, I didn't know about these appraisal management companies. I do have a question for you or Peter and, and because I'm somewhat of an appraiser in another business. And, and my question is, what, what percentage of, homes today go through these appraisal management companies? Well, the only ones that don't are the ones where the client is the person ordering the appraisal. Normally the client is the lender. And if it is a, the loan is going to go through um, GSEs, the government sponsored enterprises, then it has to go through an AMC. 
I will share with you, you'll remember I told you just a few weeks ago, I closed a home for cash. I sold a house in Kennesaw for cash. I had it appraised for my purposes. I wanted it in my files that what, what it was worth. And so I personally hired and paid for an appraiser and I instructed the appraiser not to publish this information that it was strictly for my use and my eyes only. And he put that in the appraisal as a condition of the appraisal. In that case, you can hire anybody you want if you'll pay for it, but it will not be used by a federally chartered lending institution as evidence of value. Got it. So for example, in that case, an appraisal was ordered. It is in my file, but nobody ever saw it except me. And I sold the house for substantially more than it appraised for, which makes me feel good. But you know what? You knew what you were doing and you had your own reasons, similar to when you teach about getting off track a little bit. But when you have an inspection done before the inspection, which is also facts and data, and you're not you're not uh, trying to influ- unduly influence the inspector or the appraiser, but no, you're no, just- their information. But John, it also reminded me of that course when one of your tapes many years ago, you said many times that everything starts with value from the fact that when you're going to make an offer, when you're going to stop making an offer, things like that. Um, it all starts with value. So thank you for, you gave us some CU today. I guess you don't get credit for it, but you'll figure it out. Well, and I would also mention um, my friend and and yours and Peter's, um, Scott Murphy. Uh, Scott Murphy owns a firm called DS Murphy and Associates, which is a residential appraisal company. They started in the Atlanta area. They are now almost, I won't say nationwide, but I know they're in California. I know they're in a number of East Coast, uh, Eastern Seaboard states, including Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, and they may be in Virginia. Anyway, um, Scott offers free classes called Introduction to Value. And they're from time to time, I'm going to contact his office and find out if they have any coming up. And that's something that um, Ian, I'd like for you and me to make available to people just as a a service, because um, I think uh, DS Murphy is a great company, but they have been for many years focused on education as a means of helping people understand what appraisers do. And so I, I get back to what, what we said before is that an investor who does understand principles of valuation is two steps ahead of an investor who does not. And, and so uh, that's why I've always stressed it. But anyway, I'm glad you enjoyed that. You and I have lots to talk about and only 15 minutes to do it. All right. Now, look, I want to know first, um, this repair and deduct business. um, Let me see if I can find this because I am not happy 
with uh, what has happened here. And I'm going to let you uh, talk for just a second about the current state. Talk about Robert Kiyosaki while I find this AJC article. So Robert Kiyosaki is probably many of our listeners know, wrote a very excellent book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And um, really just, just a classic in the financial press, if you will. So there's a lot of, and it sold a lot of books and is, then wrote a whole series of rich dad uh, books. And there's a lot of people that do follow him and he's taught a lot of excellent things, highly recommend them. And so an article that John is somewhat re referring to is that um, just something that came up today in my internet search was uh, that Kiyosaki is saying that we're gonna have an economic downturn in a big way. But he also was specific and I appreciated it. He, not a big believer in Bitcoin. He's also not a big believer in gold. Um, but he also did talk about some real estate stocks, if you will. So um, that that was an eye-opener simply because of the source. And that's a source that I know and respect. So I don't know if he's right. And I'm sure he doesn't say he knows it all. But he's certainly someone who has proven his value to the financial community. Yeah, I'm going to share this with people because you sent it to me, um, and here it is. Um, stock market crash and depression coming, warns Rich Dad, Poor Dad author Kiyosaki as inflation report hottest in 39 years. I, like you, over the years have been impressed with Kiyosaki's um, First, his Rich Dad, Poor Dad uh, book, I thought was very helpful to most people in understanding that there are steps you can take that tend to lead toward, toward financial freedom and that most people don't take those steps. That's sort of what I took away from Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I, I didn't particularly agree with all of his recommendations, but the fact that he was educating people that um, people who are financially free tend to do different things than people who are financial slaves. For example, um, the most popular vehicle of a wealthy person in America today, a millionaire in America today, is a... Um, Ford LTD 500. And it's just a standard fleet Ford. It's not a Cadillac. It's not a um, BMW. It's not a uh, Infinity. It's a Ford. And rich people tend, I mean, people that are financially independent tend to buy vehicles more for transportation than for ego. That's just an example. Um, financial uh, People that are financially free tend to be married. Not always, but if you see all these tendencies line up, it starts giving you some ideas. So anyway, I began to be concerned about Kiyosaki when he started appearing, Ian, in all of these gold commercials that seek to scare people into buying gold. 
And I am not a believer in investing in precious metals, although I have. I admit that I have invested in precious, and I won't say invested, I purchased them as a numismatist, which is a, for those of you with filthy minds, that is a coin collector. <laughs> okay. And if you have ever seen the um, American um, walking liberty gold coin, the $50 coin, it is simply beautiful and contains one ounce of gold. And it is, it is a gorgeous coin. It is, by the way, I, in the years that I owned them, Ian, I never touched them physically. They right. came in a plastic container, but I enjoyed so much looking at them because of their beauty. And it's like buying stamps, not because you intend to mail something, uh, because you in, you enjoy looking at it. So anyway, I recently sold my gold at 1850 an ounce, which made me feel very good because I paid 500. Excellent. Wow. And who knows what it's going to go to? I don't know, but I don't think of gold as an investment because I can't do anything with it. You can't eat it. You can't live in it. You can't enhance its value. I suppose if I were an artist and could melt that gold and make a beautiful piece of jewelry, I could, but that's not what I do. And when Robert Kiyosaki started appearing in these ads that say, experts warn there's going to be a crash in the economy, put some of your money in gold. I, I just... I became uncomfortable. I agree with you. I didn't even know that, John, but I would feel the same way because he so much talked about real assets. And yeah. so I don't see, I mean, I understand it's a hedge against inflation and I get it, but I have not seen those ads, but I would have the same uh, response. I will say this one thing about Kiyosaki that I appreciated and he talks a lot about is, you know, we, we are a real estate show here and we're talking about investments, but he stepped out and said, your personal home is not an investment. It's a liability until the day you sell it. Then yeah, if you had appreciation in your house and, and now it went up, now it becomes it, it right away changes to an asset. But he, he explained to the world what the difference is as an asset and so much having to do with this show because we're building assets, many of us part-time, that serve us when we're sleeping. And that's, that's, the, that's the goal, and that he was very much into that. Well, let's look here on the screen, and I will zoom in so we can all see it together. Um, bing, 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 bing. There he is. And what it says is, Fed and Biden pushing fake inflation, crash and depression coming. I just don't see that, Ian. And then he says gold, silver, Bitcoin, which I personally agree with um, Warren Buffett. I don't invest in things I don't understand, and I do not understand Bitcoin. So it's off the table for me, but if somebody wants to speculate, that seems like a good place to do it. 
But then he says real estate will crash too. And I just don't believe it. Um, and we have run out of time. Uh, we've got lots for next week. We need to talk about guarantor versus cosigner. You remember that? Yes, sir. We, we need cool. to talk about mean-spirited and unconstitutional evictions in Mississippi as ruled by a federal judge. By the way, did you know that that decision was immediately stayed by a higher court? Really? Immediately, because the state of Mississippi is appealing it. This this federal judge, um, well, I'm not going to go there. Margie has told me not to get too personal. (laughs) Uh, You sent me something that said evictions up, but still below pre-pandemic levels. I had no idea. Evictions That I mean, to me, that means there's hardly any evictions going on. Well, John, I think one of the numbers that they showed some of the core um, counties in Georgia. And so the takeaway there, let's say it was twenty eight hundred twenty eight hundred um, a year or something. No, twenty eight hundred a, a month. And that's a lot every day. So um in your county, for our listeners, there's a lot of evictions going on every day. And it's but that's less. But what I'm reading here, tell me if I'm right or wrong, is that is below the before the pan before COVID. Yep, you're right. That's so it, I mean, we haven't even gotten back to where we were before. Much you remember, predictions were that hundreds of millions of people would be evicted, and several hundred million people would be homeless. And only Ian Robbins and his family and John Adams and his family would be left with homes. <laughs> That's right, John. Well, looks like the media, I got to be careful. My wife's in the media. Sometimes they might tend to exaggerate. Never, never. <laughs> if it's in print, it's true. And I read it on the internet. Therefore, I know it's true. And by the way, John, this uh, quote from Kiyosaki you got to give him a lot of credit because he's getting paid to advertise gold, but here he is saying that gold's going to go down. So he's got more credibility in my book. So <laughs> I guess so. I am going to, um, uh, here's what we're going to do real quick. And this will give people something to think about as we um, finish up here. Um, here we go. I want to share real quickly, and Ian, I'm going to ask you to jump in um, as we go through these. Real, we got five minutes anyway. Five reasons the housing market anyway is not going to crash in 2022. Number one, lending standards are. This is compared to 2008, 2009, 2010, which, as we'll all recall, was the. Um, um, Great Recession or the Obama Depression or call it whatever you want, the housing crash. Um, Today, lending standards are much stricter than they were then. And that's, I've said that I could have gotten my dog a 30-year fixed rate mortgage by just applying, saying that he had a job guarding the house. And they had had these no-doc loans and low-doc loans 
that anybody could get approved and they had subprime loans and all that. Um, that those days are gone. Number two, low risk mortgages are the norm. What, what we mean by that is that the vast majority of loans are fixed rate as opposed to adjustable. And that takes the guesswork out of knowing what your payments are going to be. And I think that payment fluctuation that occurred in 2009, 2010, 2011 had a lot to do with payments rising unexpectedly and, and people throwing up their arms saying, I can't afford this since they had no skin in the game and they weren't qualified in the first place. They just walked. And, and so today people are getting 15 year fixed rate mortgages and saying, this is the last mortgage I will ever need. And they're locking in at two and a half and three and three and a half percent, which is a tremendous interest rate. Folks, if you're out there and you have not refinanced, call Peter Burke today and say, let's talk. Let's start the conversation about a 15-year fixed rate at one of these super low rates. Well, John, by the way, Go ahead. Those, those first two points. So would you say that maybe the banking industries learned something from 2008? I, you know, in 2008, the, the banking industry is going to do whatever it can to make money. And if it's legal to make crazy loans, the banks will make crazy loans all day long because that's where the money is. And you can't expect a lender to exercise discipline on the mortgage lending industry. In other words, if we called, if you and I had a, a buyer who was a friend of ours, but they weren't qualified, they didn't have a job, and they didn't have a down payment. But they did have a dog, and they were going to get the loan of the dog's name. Uh, and we called Peter, and Peter said, you know what, we probably could push this through, but I just don't feel good about it. And I would feel like it's unethical to make this loan. He might turn the loan down, but you and I both know that that buyer would go somewhere else. And if there's somewhere else that's going to make the loan, they're going to get a lot of loan originations. And, and so I, I think it's not the, the banking or the lending industry. It is the regulators and Congress keeping their damn nose out of the real estate business. This business of Congress trying to do social engineering by playing with real estate and lending is for the birds. Let the market take care of itself. Number three, right now, homeowners are swimming in equity, which is great. This is very different from the way a lot of people were in 2009, because at that time, home values started declining. Do you remember we had foreclosures, because the banks wouldn't work with people. They didn't have loss mitigation departments. They just said, you didn't make a payment. Screw you. We're going to foreclose. They'd foreclose, and then they'd let the house rot. Vagrants would move in, 
the place would become a den of crime and drug use, dragging down neighborhood values. That's not happening today. Um, homeowners have lots of equity. And even if they have to sell at a distressed price, which they don't, it'll sell in the first weekend, even if it's in poor condition, because you and I will buy it. Yep, and that's so, for sure. But you know what? Back in the day, you were teaching <clears throat> our community how to uh, get a lender to take less on the amount owed. Forget oh, the I know. But they, you were teaching they they wouldn't do it because they had never experienced this kind of market before. Let's move to number four, the job market. I realize a lot of people have just left the job market, but if somebody wants to work, they certainly can. Oh, yeah. And, and if somebody is in danger of losing their home, they can hardly say, well, I can't find a job which is why I can't make my mortgage payment. They may not get the job they want, right. but there are plenty of jobs out there and they're not all at McDonald's. So I would just point out that, you know, everybody always blames McDonald's and Wendy's. These are what I call first time job or job training jobs where you learn how to add some value to an employer. And I enjoyed the time I worked at McDonald's. I, it was illegal. Did I ever tell you about that? No, what happened? I went up to the manager. I'd been hanging out there a lot. And there was a couple of cute girls that worked there. And I was 15. And uh, I got talking to the manager. And he said, look, we need somebody. You want to work? And I said, yeah. He said, how old are you? I said, I'm 15. He said, well, I can't hire you. The insurance will not cover you until you're 16. And I said, well, what if I told you I was 16? And he said, well, if you put it on the application, I wouldn't know any different. <laughs> so I put it on the application and went to work. I worked there for about three months until we got a notice or he got a notice from either the insurance company or McDonald's international or something saying I was not of legal age yet. And he came to me and he said, I sure am sorry, but I've got to let you go. Uh, his point was, which was sort of well taken. He said, if you slipped and fell into the French fry machine, we wouldn't be able to give you any insurance. <laughs> well, you know, you got, he, he was right, but I got to ask you, John, and I'm sure the listeners want to know, were you into French fries or you were making the hammers? What, I what was, was your job? Uh, they started me on the shake machine, okay. which is, this was back when you actually scooped stuff in and squirted in strawberry or chocolate or vanilla. And then you put them on the Mixomatic. And you remember it was Ray Kroc that sold those Mixomatic shake machines. That's where he came from. Um, and then when they were done, they would slow down and you take them out and pour them in a cup. <clears throat> then I graduated to French fries. The most talented person in the store was a grill man. And I never became a grill man. Okay. But I was on burger assembly and they had a round table 
where you would, and that it was like a lazy Susan and you would put all your buns out on, on the, the round thing. And they had a gun that when you squirted it, it was like a cock gun, except it had ketchup in it and you would squirt it once for ketchup one and it was measured. So it was exactly the same amount. So then when you went into houses, you knew how to use the gun to put in insulation, right? I did. I did. And that came from my McDonald's training and I am forever grateful. So the job market is strong and struggling homeowners. If there are any have more options, a lot more options than they did 10 or 12 years ago. And I would say this to anybody listening that is struggling. If you're thinking that you might offer, you might uh, have to go into foreclosure, call Ian Robbins or John Adams. We'll come by your house and we'll pay cash. How about that? Absolutely. And, and there still are motivated sellers out there. Boy, that's for sure. All right. Well, I am now going to wrap things up if that's okay. Um, but I've got to figure out where I'm going first. Let's see. Um, I'm going to page 80. Whoop, that's 82. That's no good. That's no good. Here we go. Eight zero. Oh, I've got to be in the show. That's right. That see, I'm still learning here. Here we go. Eight zero. And it's time for us to do. Uh, listen, we have lots, Ian. We have lots to talk about next week. So I'm. We're going to talk about the repair and deduct, which is not Georgia law. We're going to talk about guarantor versus cosigner in the killer lease and everybody's lease. We're going to talk about mean-spirited and unconstitutional evictions. And we are going to talk about um, more about why DeKalb County has not distributed the rent relief funds that were entrusted to them, which really burns me up because California has distributed one hundred percent and you told me georgia had distributed how much 15 percent. 15 percent, folks there's something wrong they got some to do somebody's not doing the right thing here so that being the case we're going to get out of here folks i have this has been a long session today but i got started on valuation and could not stop so um on behalf of my evil twin, Ian Robbins, I'm John Adams. Telling you, that's a 3-0 Mark IV, the John Adams radio show. And on behalf of Ian Robbins, this is John Adams reminding you, your financial future is not a matter of chance. It's a matter of choice. Make your choice a good one. So long, everybody. 